Next Chapter Podcasts. And we're back once again to shine a flashlight up America's deep, dark crevices and see what we can see. Ah, gross! This is Indecent with Kiki Anderson, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Last time, in our exploration of all things off-center, we got into the nitty-gritty with our itty-bitty comedy committee, Natalie McGill and Bill Conway, delving into how exactly we're supposed to find the funny in these dark, desolate times. It is very difficult to cut through all of the the stuff we are bombarded with at all times because, yeah, you get an alert on your phone about, you know, eight dead in a mall and you're like, cool, how many of them were children? Seven, like, oh, nice, like, this is great. Um, was, that, was that a daycare? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right, um, well, I have to go to Whole Foods now and get some quinoa, uh, so um, carrying on. Now, one of the biggest factors that shapes comedy, besides deep, unhealed wounds and a desperate need for attention, is the platform. These days, the internet has become where our culture lives, for better or for worse. Like we talked about way back in episode two with Samantha Cole, it's not a one-way street. The internet reacts to our culture just as much as it shapes our culture. And that means that we're seeing familiar patterns in brand new ways. I mean, there's a reason every stand-up comic keeps posting crowd work clips. You know the ones where they ask poor, unsuspecting ticket buyers deeply personal questions. I'll be turning. In our reaction-based meme economy, it's not enough to just post a joke. You gotta post an experience, something relatable, accessible. It's the same reason that brands have started ditching their expensive commercials in favor of those like vertical videos. You know the ones where the hot girls in the loungewear in their bathrooms? Authenticity is just a filter and it's one that sells more product. But if you ask me, the Herbal Essences commercials back in the day were just fine and they were far from relatable or accessible. It's one of the crazier aspects of the internet. It's both real and it's fake. The things that happen online are both meaningful and meaningless. A half-baked tweet can have the feds kicking down your door while other people make stacks off acting like video game characters and saying, ice cream so good, a thousand times, over and over and over. Yes, yes, yes. And as much as online spaces have become echo chambers for the worst people in the world, they do also let well-meaning weirdos connect in all kinds of positive ways. Back in the 1950s, if you had a niche interest, you'd have to either find your community in person or try to dial someone up on the CB radio. Now all you gotta do is log onto a subreddit for Victorian murder mystery cosplayers and you have an entire likely deeply horny community right at your fingertips. Hello there. Anyone can access all of these spaces all of the time. It's both beautiful and terrifying. Yes, you can settle your debts by selling your dirty thongs and your murky bathwater on the internet. At the same time, there's anime porno forums that radicalize racist virgins to the point of mass violence. That's real. Remember QAnon, everyone's favorite Trump cult hellbent on bringing down the ring of satanic cannibal pedophiles that secretly rule our world? Before they were scaling and falling from the walls of the Capitol, this movement got its start on 4chan a website that was originally designed for trading hentai. I'm gonna spare you the Google search and just say hentai is the kind of content where hot cartoon chicks get titty fucked by tentacles. Really? Please, stifle your boner till after the show. Now, let's go ahead and save ourselves some times by just accepting the fact 
that greedy little bitch boys like Zuckerberg and Musk are never gonna make this easier for any of us. I mean, come on, those super yachts don't pay for themselves. And white supremacists have deep pockets. Sometimes, right-wing groups like the Heritage Foundation, Donors Trust, and the Federalist Society offer their sickly pale tits to whatever member of Congress has their mouth wide open for some extra sucking. Nom 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 nom. But another great way to flex their influence is by pouring hundreds of thousands into groups like Moms for Liberty, who then go viral by filming themselves at school board meetings, drunk on Chablis and screaming about CRT. Sure, they're fun at parties, but you'd be surprised how convincing these drunk white moms can really be. I am telling you right now that motherfucker back there is not real. Still, we've got no meaningful gun control and 241 new measures against teaching CRT, despite the fact that most people can't even define what the fuck it is. And all of those groups pump big bucks into Facebook ads, Twitter campaigns. The internet's gotten messier than a night out with Lizzo, and both of those things are gonna take a massive overhaul to course correct. So, how can the internet be the best, fullest, most capable version of itself while keeping us safe from the whims of the racist white boys that run it? At Indecent, our brand is all about nuance. Well, nuance and nudity. Anyway, we are thrilled to have on the show today Bridget Todd, host of not one, but two amazing podcasts. First one, there are no girls on the internet. The other one, next chapter's very own, Beef. Bridget is a digital activist, speaker, and trainer on countering disinformation, who's worked with Planned Parenthood, MSNBC, and the Democratic Party. Bridget is also an expert in the intersection between real-world inequalities and online spaces. And honestly, she did her very best to help me close all the browser tabs on my anxiety about the future. Hi, Bridget. Welcome. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Kiki. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, yes. We're so excited to talk to you from our sister pod, Beef. But you're also known for your incredible podcast called There Are No Girls on the Internet. Tell me a little bit about what you guys talk about. There Are No Girls on the Internet is really an exploration of the internet and social media and technology, but from the perspective of voices and stories that are often not heard. So queer folks, trans folks, women, um, LGBTQ folks, Black folks, sex workers, working folks, all of the different perspectives and dynamics and voices and experiences that we know make being online what it is, make it the rich tapestry that we all keep showing up to every day. Yet those stories are often overlooked or not told. And so on There Are No Girls on the Internet, we really want to create a platform to be a spotlight for the vast array of stories that make the internet so great. Yeah. And I love that title, There Are No Girls on the Internet. I just had a clip, like a comedy clip go viral, and it went viral for all the wrong reasons. Like it was found by all the right wing insults that were commenting, <laughs> women aren't funny. I'm like, where are the women? Why aren't any of the women sticking up for me? So it does really feel that way. Like there are no girls on the internet. Oh, God, yes. Oh, I should tell you, I have a shirt that says men aren't funny that I like <laughs> to wear whenever I do podcast conferences because we're just, it's so interesting which groups people are just totally comfortable just completely sidelining and marginalizing and think nothing of it. But then when that's done to men, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, I really like, we're talking about aliens and stuff these days and like how they're real. I'm like, yeah, they've been real. They're right here. They are these men that are commenting on my videos, right? Like, we have nothing in common. <laughs> what was the experience like of having a video get lots of eyeballs and traction and attention for the, for the reasons that you would not want it to be like online? Well, you know, at first it really hurt my feelings because the, the comments started out 
less pointed about my gender. They, they started out like eviscerating the joke, but then it became clear that maybe this was being shared in like an incel circle or something, because then it just became women teacup, women teacup, which I learned is like a thing mm-hmm. incels do. I don't really understand what it means, but it's some kind of weird internet language I'm not privy to. And then it became about like, women should go back to the kitchen, women suck, blah, 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 blah. And I started investigating their profiles and it was all like Babylon B screenshots. I'm like, oh, well, that's who you are. And it's not about the joke. It's about you and I don't know it started hurting my feelings less because of that and I was like all right well I guess this is good for engagement you know now I have like 20,000 views or whatever but I'm like I really wish that women had popped up in the comments and maybe they're not even seeing it is the problem is like maybe it's only being seen by these haters you know I mean I on there no girls on the internet one of the things that we talk quite a bit about are coordinated harassment campaigns and coordinated hate and I'm sorry to say that that is exactly what I would imagine is happening, that that video was being shared in these darker corners of the internet populated by men to coordinate and swarm and sort of leave the same comments under this video. And what's so interesting is that you said that it started with being about the joke or your comedy or like some sort of substantive critique of what you were saying. And then it morphs into an attack on your identity. And so that's a, that is also like a common way that these kinds of online attacks work, where it starts with being something that maybe is a genuine critique on your joke. Then it's about your identity. And if you say, if you're like, hey, this is hurting my feelings or hey, this is sexist, then they say, well, look who can't handle substantive critiques of their comedy because they're they're kind of counting on those two things being conflated. And so it's a way that it's a trap that you can never win because as soon as you speak up about it, they're like, oh, well, if you can't handle criticism, don't make jokes. But they're not actually criticizing your jokes or criticizing your identity as a woman. Right. And also that first concept, like, what the fuck? Like, I'm a comedian, so therefore I don't have feelings. Like, what, right. what planet do you live on? <laughs> <laughs> planet asshole. So talk to me, Bridget, you know, we're kind of already getting into it, but what is the state of the internet? Not just in general, but, you know, to you, you're a black woman with a podcast, like, I'm a white woman with a podcast and it's terrifying. It's got to be so much worse for you. Well, the state of the internet is always going to be, I think, a story of duality. I, the reason why I make content about the internet is I love the internet, right? Like, I still remember the day that my parents came home in like the 90s with a boxy gray monstrosity of a computer and set it up in our computer room. And like, that was a thing. It was like my parents had bought me a pair of wings. For the first time, I was able to really explore the world and who I was and what it all meant outside of my tiny little Southern town in Virginia. And so I truly love the internet and I am truly optimistic about the state of the internet. However, I have to be real with the fact that the internet that I came of age on and the internet that young people today are coming of age on are two different things where I was able to use the internet to sort of safely explore my identity, who I am, answer questions about my gender, my sexuality, my race, my identity, my interests, my fears, my values, all of that. I do not believe that we have an internet landscape today that allows for today's generation of young people to safely explore all of those questions. And that is a problem. And so I think when it comes to the state of the internet today, I am worried that As our internet becomes more and more politicized, uh, more and more intense, more and more legislated by people who have interest in, you know, um, suppressing and and ramping down on 
marginalized people, I worry that we don't really have an internet where today's young people can safely answer those questions that were so pivotal to me answering to sort out my own identity when I was coming of age. Yeah, that that's an interesting, it's kind of a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, like, it is easier to find your groups and your silos on the internet. But on the other hand, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're choosing between Twitter, Elon's Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook, Instagram, and now Threads. And then like Chinese TikTok. I don't know. Like there's no safe space on the internet. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture of the internet landscape that I was exploring back in the 90s. But there was this very kind of optimistic idea back then of the internet being this utopia, this this democratized place where you could connect and find anything. And I think that was such a beautiful vision But that vision didn't actually pan out. And the reason why it didn't is the same old thing, capitalism, right? People wanted to make money off of this beautiful vision for the future of what the internet could be. Now we have like a handful, like a very small handful of major companies that essentially run all of our telecommunications and our digital communications online. You know, you got to choose. Do you want your your Elon Musk flavor billionaire run platform? Do you want your Mark Zuckerberg run platform? flavor platform? Do you want your Bezos platform? Like, we deserve so much better than an internet ecosystem that is controlled by a small handful of white male, white male billionaires. I believe that more is possible. Like, that dream of what the internet could be, how it could connect us, how it could unite us and helping us understand the world around us. I believe in that dream. And the, what we have today is we deserve so much better than, than the reality of how it turned out. I mean, it seemed to me, maybe my timing is a little off on this one. It seemed to me like a week before Threads launched, an app called Spill came out, which I think is black owned. Mm-hmm. And is. then over the pandemic, Clubhouse came out. Where, where's Clubhouse? Like all of these other alternative apps that keep coming up, like just suddenly disappeared and then get taken over by bigger, more powerful apps run by Zuckerberg and Musk. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, and I think it's sort of, it, it, it deals with a kind of fundamental question of what we want from our platforms, right? Because if I am Elon Musk and I'm running Twitter, I am invested in Twitter being the biggest platform on earth. I want everybody on Twitter, when you say something on Twitter, you are saying it to as many people as possible. But that level of that level of scale is in fact like, how platforms are able to make a lot of money. But is it possible that that is at odds with what is good for us people, right? Like maybe the experience that you want is a little bit more curated, a little bit more intimate. Maybe you're looking for something a little bit less like a massive town square where everybody's voice is there and very loud. Maybe you want something more like a campfire or a, you know, group lunch table or something. And so I think we're in this really weird situation where what is good for the platforms, things like scale and rapid growth, might not actually be good for us, the people using those platforms. And so I think it's why you see a lot of platforms popping up like um, another Black-owned platform, Somewhere Good, which is really about having those intimate, smaller conversations. Because you know when you have conversations that are a little bit smaller by intention, you can really scale things like care and really making sure that things are user-centric and people-centric. I don't think it's possible to have a platform that truly meaningfully puts care for users at the center and also have it be the biggest platform in the world. I I, I think those two things are really at odds. 
That's super interesting. Yeah, especially, I don't know, I, there's this weird dynamic on Twitter right now where it seems to be getting worse because there are fewer staff members <laughs> running it. <laughs> uh, but I'm old enough to remember a time where everybody was on Zanga, and Zanga probably had like two dudes in a basement running oh it. It was so God, janky. Zanga! <laughs> you just took me, girl, that is like a blast from the past. How much of, like, I would love to see a tally of how many hours of my life I spent on Zanga because it wouldn't be a lot. <laughs> right, just picking all the cute icons and music. Yeah, and so I, I think you're right. I think that's why we've seen Twitter be this battleground for power because it is such an important platform. Probably more than any other social media platform, Twitter is how you could build real social and political power. Me Too was kickstarted on Twitter. Black Lives Matter started on Facebook, but the conversation really took off on Twitter, right? We have seen... Like Arab Spring happened because of Twitter. Twitter is where so many journalists, media makers, newsmakers, activists, people who care about issues are all congregating. And thus, it is a place where you can really build power. And so for marginalized people who might not have had access to more traditional platforms and, and, and places where power is built, like the New York Times op-ed pages or whatever, you could actually build up your own platform and say, well, I still get to have a voice. And I think now what is happening is that people, the people who are leaving Twitter are the people who are just like, who, who are just like interested in having conversations, right? Like I barely show up on that platform anymore because the last time that I was on Twitter just a few days ago, one of the top enduring trends was transphobic nonsense. And I just, I just don't want to voluntarily spend my time absorbing that kind of garbage. And I, I don't blame anybody who feels that way. And so I think the big threat is that normal people, people who are not extremists, people who are not invested in causing chaos or spreading garbage or nonsense, they're just going to say, I don't need this in my life and leave. And so this incredibly powerful platform is then just made up of people who are interested in, you know, extremism, hate speech, mis and disinformation, harassment, not to mention like crypto scams and all other kinds of scams and like really scammy, spammy advertising. And I think that is not only is it bad for, you know, advancing social causes and it's bad for marginalized people, we just deserve better than having one of our major digital communications platforms not be a place where you can find reliable, accurate, timely information. Because, you know, when I needed to know where to go get my COVID exams during, you know, during 2020, I looked at Twitter. When I when there was a shooting on my block and I needed to know, like, are these cross sections, are these crossroads open? Or like, can I go down this block? I checked my local government's Twitter, right? Like when something happens, Twitter is the only platform we have to give you real time information. Like you're not going to go to Facebook. It moves too slow. Instagram just isn't for that. Your, your like local government's website, they probably can't update it quick enough. Twitter is where you go. And so if we lose that, if Twitter is no longer reliably the place where you can go to find real time, accurate information, it's a loss for all of us. It makes us all less safe, not just marginalized people. Yeah. So speaking of like silos and communities and, you know, sections of the Internet, Pete, our producer, had brought up this really interesting article that he talked about how Black Twitter specifically like helped keep a lot of people accountable. Uh, like R. Kelly, like that came up through Black Twitter. T talk to me more about that accountability and like where are these where are these voices supposed to go now? Like, do you, is there a place or are they just, are we just doomed right now? You know, I think Black Twitter, time and time again, we saw Black Twitter being used as this way to build accountability and to 
make a way where there was no way, right? Like R. Kelly has been around forever preying on Black women and girls. And it was activists and organizers using platforms like Twitter. Um, Shout out to my girl Jade, formerly of Color of Change, who was like a big part of the Mute R. Kelly campaign, which started as a hashtag on Twitter. And they got him out of there, right? I could give you, this was of the time when people would be like, oh, hashtag activism, you're not really doing anything. Could give you five different examples of times when just making noise and building up momentum on Twitter had a real world tangible change. And so I think that that is the story of being marginalized. It's, it's not like Twitter was pre-Elon Musk was this place that was super inclusive of Black voices. Certainly not. But I would say that one thing that Black folks are always going to do is make a way out of no way and figure out how to be served lemons and make lemonade out of it. And so we were really able to say, like, it doesn't matter if these platforms actually are hostile to us and our voices and our experiences. We're going to learn how to use them and learn how to amplify ourselves and learn how to build that power in spite of that. And so that, so, so whether or not that endures on a new platform, on Twitter, whatever, I don't know. But I do really deeply believe in the power of our ability to make our voices heard, even when all the forces around, around us are trying to drown it out. Like that is one thing I will always bet on is that marginalized people will find a way to make our voices heard and find a way to build that power and make a way out of no way, because that is what we've always had to do and we will keep doing it. Okay, so it's very fun to watch Elon basically become like a sad Gen X version of Prometheus. You know, the Greek Titan who gets his liver pecked out by the buzzards every day. Except in Elon's case, it's his foot that grows back every time he shoots himself in it. <laughs> However, it's also fucking sad. He ruined Twitter, okay? I love Twitter. Twitter used to be fun. It was informative. It was weird in all the best ways. <sighs> now, I'm not gonna be the liberal that forces you to sit through some like weird white guilty rant about how the sun shines out of every POC's asshole. But it should be obvious if you are a normal critical thinker that most of the cool shit that we enjoy in our culture, whether it's food, fashion, music, medicine, is thanks to black and brown people. So when you make online spaces hostile to anyone who isn't white, inevitably they're gonna get fucking worse. Therefore, the indecent team started thinking, as we normally do, if the billionaires won't do it themselves, why don't we help create a pro-black space online? So we got some of our favorite black comedians to come up with their idea for the next great app. Hi, my name's Ray, and my pitch for an app is called Mule, uh, spelled like fuel, but with an M. And what this is, is an app that will give black people their reparations the 40 acres and a mule. So what we will have are mules set up like city bikes around every major city. And what you gotta do is you gotta go scan your ID. And if you are black in your ID, then you can have a mule assigned to you. And then that mule will take you to uh, 40 acres of land where you can go and chill. Hi, I'm Martin Morrow and my idea is to have the next great black platform be one that's exclusively for black people. Anytime that black people have had something that was exclusive to us, be it like a town or a word, uh, that's when white people really, really want to take it over. So the best way to make a black app be great and make a black app really blow up is make it only for black people so then white people will want to take it even more. That's, that's how everything operates. There's a reason why if you go to the Reddit for black Twitter, it's a lot of white people pretending to be black people. So 
It's a genius idea. Someone give me a billion dollars. I'd love an app um, that showed a counter above white people's head um, that showed how many times they've said the N-word. Hey, I'm Vaughn, and my pitch is to bring MySpace back. I think every black person would love that. Because MySpace used to be lit, but it became whack. We just need to put that $100 million into marketing, make it cool, and just get everybody back on there because we already got pages. Ain't no need to start a new app when we already got an app that's good. You know what I'm saying? Could you please? Hey, Momo Puja here. And, and uh, I just want to say that since Elon Musk turned Twitter into X, obviously as an homage to the most famous Malcolm of all time, my black app is about to be the meeting place for the second most famous Malcolm of all time. That of course being Malcolm Jamal Warner, better known as Theo Huxtable. Jamal Warner, which is what my app is gonna be called, will just be a place where black boys can just hang out and have a good old wholesome time, talk about their doctor dad or some shit. I don't know. Great, I'll take it. My name is Kevin Titt, and I think a great idea for an app would be one where I can point the camera at, say, a white coworker or boss's face, and the camera will scan the internet and use facial recognition to see if any photos of this person in blackface show up. I think that'd be a good way to help black people navigate through the workplace and everyday life. Someone wants to say some sideways shit, you pull up the, the app, and they're like, hey, is this you, pal? Right? We all win. Scanning. Hi, my name is Natalie McGill, and if I had $100 million to make the perfect platform for Black people, I would create one called Dark Mode. Why Dark Mode? Because we have melanin, and as everyone already knows, Dark Mode is the only way to enjoy social media apps. So right off the bat, hearts for statuses will be replaced by raised fists, and emojis of body parts are automatically Black. So no longer do you have to feel like a second-class citizen as you thumb your way through eight sets of prayer hands to find some black ones. Finally, if anyone decides to make a status about Chris Brown, Kanye West, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, and recently Tory Lanez, an automatic pop-up alert comes up that reads, by tweeting about this person, we cannot be held responsible for you getting destroyed in the quote retreats and the absolute napalming of your mentions. Sharks, I hope you were listening. Shout out to Ray Easter, Martin Morrow, Kristen Wallace, Vaughn Michael, Momo Puja, Kevin Titt, and our old friend Natalie McGill for contributing. Check out the show notes to see how you can follow all these hilarious people. Now, let's get back to Bridget. Every week I tweet, I'm getting off this bullshit. <laughs> and then I delete the tweet and I stay on Twitter because like threads is just not an enjoyable experience. Yes. Like, I hate threads. I hate threads. It's just, it just too... I mean, I was reading this... this um, or I saw this TikTok from this great tech journalist, Morgan Sung, who's talking about how like threads is like just too brand safe. And so the reason why Twitter popped the way it did is because you had weirdos showing ass on Twitter. And so like a platform can, can't, can only be so good if it doesn't have like people being weird, nudity, like a kind of, kind of a, like a tolerance of, you know, not brand safe behavior and threads is just so it's just so cringy and brand safe that to me it's not worth showing up to it just is so boring and yeah i i promised myself that i was never gonna tweet i'm getting off of twitter because i know i'll be back that's the thing it's like i i wish i could be like i'm done with this platform forever but it keeps pulling me back i saw this very funny tweet that was like 
when I watched the, the movie Titanic, I didn't understand why the band kept playing as the ship went down. And now that I'm on Twitter, I kind of get it. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is exactly right. Yeah, t- definitely Threads is like too sanitized. I don't know. There's definitely a lot of weirdos on the internet, but I personally enjoy that part of Twitter where I'm like, I could be reading like NBC News's tweets and then see my friend tweet like a weird porn clip. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay, you can have it all, all at the same yes. time. <laughs> exactly. That's that's, that's like a Thanksgiving what, that's, plate. <laughs> the prom, that's the promise of the internet. It's like some highbrow, like, thoughtful take next to like somebody throwing ass like that's what I want from a platform (laughs) that is what I want from a platform you're right Bridget that is oh yes (laughs) that's the brand we need to strive for and I really don't understand what Elon's like long game is because it really just feels like he's sowing discord like just for fun (laughs) like it's not making him more rich or more powerful he's losing money and he's like threatening to beat the shit out of Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, <laughs> as much as I don't like Mark Zuckerberg, I'm like, he's beating you on every level. Right. And I think, I mean, like, that's, I mean, far be it to me, for me to like speculate what's going on in Elon Musk's head. It's like trying to figure out what a dog is thinking, but like, <laughs> or like, what, like, yeah, like why a dog does what it does. But like, I think that we have a real problem with, with, it just demonstrates the problem that we have with wealth concentration in this country. When somebody can have so much money that they buy one of our largest digital communications platforms, almost on a lark, they tank it overnight. It's no longer valuable. They lose a lot of money and it's just like a blip to them. Like, it's just like, nobody should have that much money where that's what they're able to do. Well, and that's the thing is that in order to create anything that could compete with these apps, it does feel like you just have to have like incredible funding and be like Elizabeth Holm and get like Henry Kissinger to fund you. Like, (laughs) I mean, if I get the chance to listen, Henry Kissinger, if you're listening, I would love for you to fund any project. Like I would, I'll I'll be happy to scam you. (laughs) Just let me know. (laughs) Let's sell out. Let's go. (laughs) So speaking about like, all these movements that started on the internet. I mean, now they're being just reduced onto these catchphrases, woke or feminism. It's like literally, it's not woke, like literally just asking for rights, like literally just asking for justice. (laughs) So where do those catchphrases come from? Why do people use them? Is it like, is it good marketing on the right side? Or talk to me a little bit about that. Oh, what a good, this is a really thoughtful question. I think about this a lot. And, you know, using the word woke, that's one that I really think of a lot because the idea of being woke really started in Black communities, kind of like Black leftist radical communities. And it's so interesting to me how white extremists and white supremacists were able to take our own word from us, strip it from its meaning, and then fling it back at us as an insult, an insult, by the way, that they cannot even define. When I hear someone like Ron DeSantis say like, no more woke policies in school, I would love to see a journalist pressure him and say, what exactly do you mean by woke? Define it, give me examples of it. How is this specific policy woke? Uh, these, These words that have just basically become like right wing extremists like scare terms that are no longer grounded in any kind of meaning any, anymore. I think part of it is that like there's been no accountability of asking people who are proudly and confidently using these words to define what they think they mean, right? I saw some story a, a while back where like a guy had been pinched in the Kentucky Derby for his uh, doping his racehorse. And so it was like, oh, you can't have a racehorse that you've 
doped up. So you have to be disqualified. And he was like, another instance of cancel culture. And I'm thinking, sir, how is this cancel culture? You can't give a horse steroids and then put it in a race. In what way is your horse being canceled? Like this is just called rules. <laughs> it's, it's this weird thing where like, they have been able to really successfully brand anything they don't like as cancel culture or woke or, you know, identity politics. And so these kinds of conversations and the way that the temperature has been so turned up intentionally around them, they really make us all less informed because we actually do need to be able to have thoughtful, accurate, substantive conversations about some of these big issues that keep us divided. Things like race, gender, sexuality, class. All of these things are really important and it's important that we find common ground on them. It would be great if we were able to use our internet you know, landscape to do that, but these people have taken these words and turned them into these, you know, boogeymen that completely confirm that we're not going to be able to have any kind of real conversation and find any real common ground on these issues that are that are facing us that are so important, right? So like, you know, if you want to talk about race, when you throw words like woke and, you know, use words like critical race theory as like a boogeyman, we're not going to be able to have that substantive conversation that we really need to have. And we're all just going to remain divided. Yeah. Well, and it always, rather than having like a larger, more intelligent conversation about critical race theory or about gender, it always comes down to like one issue, one instance, like that one trans athlete, mm-hmm. like whatever you feel about trans athletes, I can only name like one of them. <laughs> like, why are we even, why has this become the divide in America? You know, like they're always saying that the left is ramming these things down their throats. No, you're ramming it down our throats. <laughs> like, Oh, a thousand percent. So I, I mean, this is a common tactic of like disinformers and bad actors to take these issues that are complicated and complex and flatten them out to, to make them sort of caricatures of what's happening. And like with the trans athletes thing, look how, look how successfully these right wing extremists were able to smear Dylan Mulvaney. What did Dylan Mulvaney do other than agree to, you know, do a one time Instagram sponsorship with Bud Light. Look look at how big of a deal they made about that. Ron DeSantis is talking about having that be a plank of his presidential campaign going forward. That's how obsessed with these issues these people are. And so I would actually wager that most people in the United States could not, if, if asked to pick, up, pick out Dylan from a lineup, could not do it. Because I don't think that most people spend their days thinking this intently about trans people in this way. I don't think healthy people, even people who are, you know, right wing or moderate, I don't think that they, I don't think that this is an issue that keeps them up at night. It is a small amount of very loud extremists who have been able to hijack our public discourse and social media platforms to give the impression that this is what is on the mind of the average American. And I just don't believe that it is. Yeah, I agree with you. I I used to work for this, uh, like, we had a number of clients that were in the social justice space and one of them dealt with like online misinformation and we got to see like how much money was spent on like Facebook ads, like pushing these like right wing memes about Dylan Mulaney and whoever the hell else. They spend so much money keeping people mad about these issues. And at the end of the day, nobody's being served. It's super sad. Yeah. And that's such a good point. I always say like when it comes to conversations about misinformation and disinformation and these kinds of like drummed up hate campaigns, Follow the money because somebody is making money off of this. People aren't just doing this for no reason. Somebody is making money. Somebody is cashing a check. Somebody is booking a spot on, you know, 
Tucker Carlson as we speak or whatever is left of his little dog and pony show on Twitter, whatever it is now, there are organizations that make more money than you and I will probably ever see in our lifetime that are very invested in shutting down any kind of forward momentum or conversation on these big thorny issues. And so the internet, they have realized, is a very effective way to do that. And so these are not necessarily conversations that are just coming from the grassroots. They're conversations that are coming from moneyed institutions who are invested in stalling these conversations. Then they trickle down to your garden variety extremists who know, you know, who have been now, now kind of given talking points of what to say to make sure that when somebody talks about sexuality or gender or critical race theory or affirmative action, they know the triggers to hit and the tension points to hit to make sure that that conversation goes nowhere and just turns into a cacophony of people screaming at each other rather than the kind of thoughtful analysis and conversation that we actually need to have to get anywhere on those issues. Yeah. Yeah. They become rallying cries, which is so interesting because like I have relatives that are wealthy right wing Republicans and they use those same rallying cries and are united by these same memes that poor white farmers in like, you know, fucking Iowa might might also share. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. but my relatives probably hate you. <laughs> like, right. you guys already, don't even come from the same cloth. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's it. But we see that time and time again with bad actors who are interested in sowing division, particularly online of if you keep these intra community groups angry at each other and fearful of each other you can really sow a lot of chaos and you can really create a lot of confusion when you keep people afraid of their neighbors, paranoid, you know, worried about things like crime, worried about people who are different. You can really control people with that, that fear element. It's very effective. It's why they do it. Do you ever feel like the left is also guilty of that? Oh yeah, I do. I mean, it's harder to talk about, uh, to be clear, like, I think that it is definitely a bigger problem on the right because the right is like savvier and better at it than we are. I mean, I, I see I see conspiracy theories pop up on the left all the time. And I think that we have a much harder time talking about it because it's been really branded as a right wing problem. It is certainly a bigger problem. The research is very clear about this. It is certainly a bigger problem in right wing extremist circles, but we're guilty of it, too. And so I think it is really important to call it out clearly when you see it. Um, A good example would be this idea that some of these kookier right wing elected officials like your Marjorie Taylor Greens, that they are like paid actors. And it, it's it's one of those things where it is sort of grounded in truth. It is true that some of these people have backgrounds in the entertainment industry, but so did Ronald Reagan, right? That does not mean that they are like being paid, by, like that they're not genuinely an elected official who is genuinely, you know, saying abhorrent things because they had a background as an entertainment professional. That might mean that they're good at getting the spotlight and good at speaking and good at like capturing your attention. But this conspiracy theory that like, they are, you know, plants, be- and the way that you know that they are plants is because they are they have backgrounds in entertainment. Um, that's just nonsense, right? And so I do think that we have a lot of not so accurate talking points that we cling to on the left as well, and it's that much more important that we call that out and don't fall prey to it because I think it's really easy to do that. I think sometimes we can really yearn for explanations to things that are complicated that kind of tie things up in a tidy bow. Somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene couldn't possibly have just been elected by the people. She has to be some sort of paid informant or plant or something like that. 
it's possible that, you know, it, it's easier to believe that than it is to see the the truth, which is much worse that like, actually she was elected, people voted for her. And she says things that are abhorrent. Uh, well, I, I haven't ran into somebody yet that says that they like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they gotta be out there. <laughs> that means she won. <laughs> No shocker there. Two of the biggest cogs in the capitalist machine are fear and anger. That's the history of mass media in a nutshell. But kudos to Bridget, who was trying to keep us thinking about what the internet could be. Because you know us, we are gluttons for godforsaken filth. We spend a lot of time harping on what the internet actually is, including all of its flat earth forms and memes about how slavery was like a summer camp, all that bullshit. We have to do it. You gotta stare the scary stuff in the hole, because if you don't, before you even see it coming, you've got a redneck and nothing but a bearskin rug burning down the Library of Congress. So next time, we're talking to political commentators Jesse Delamore and Brittany Page, who know the world of right-wing weirdos better than most. I, I don't think my parents had a, a grip on like what their political activism or political orientation actually was. Although I remember my my dad taking us to meet Pat Buchanan. <laughs> what, a, what a joy that was. I was taught that black people have a different skeletal structure than whites and like just insane um, believing that the earth is 7,000 years old, just absolute abject nuttiness, but peppered in with extreme right-wing politics. I mean, to this day, my parents believe that the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, is illiberal and he is a wildly extreme Republican by any measure, and they consider him a rhino, a Republican in name only. New episodes come out every other Wednesday. Giving us a rating and a review is a huge help. Do it. Make sure other people can find the show. Indecent is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. Go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. And if you have something you want us to talk about, a guest you want to recommend, or you have an especially traumatizing screenshot to share now that you actually Googled hentai probably, well, shoot us an email at indecentthepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at indecentkiki and follow me at it's Kiki Anderson. My producers are Max Wolfson and Pete Musto, and our executive producer is Jeremiah Tittle. I'm Kiki Anderson, and this has been Indecent, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s, and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next chapter podcasts.